Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. On this week's episode, we've got the singer and songwriter from a legendary 90s and beyond band, alongside a relative newcomer whose songs he deeply influenced, Adam Duritz and Sean Barna. If you don't know his name, you certainly know Duritz's band, Counting Crows. Active since 1991, the group has sold 20 million albums, enjoyed a bunch of big hits, and been a powerhouse touring act for that entire run. To his great credit, Duritz, as you'll hear in this chat, has never stopped engaging with new music, both as a songwriter and as a sort of talent scout. He started two different festivals that you'll hear about, the Outlaw Roadshow and Underwater Sunshine, which are kind of built like jam sessions for both established and -and up-and-coming songwriters. Counting Crows continues to release new music, too, including a lengthy EP called Butter Miracle Sweet One, which was recorded during pandemic times and showcases a slightly glammier side of the band. Check out a little bit of Elevator Boots right here, and check out Counting Crows on tour this summer with Dashboard Confessional. Bobby was a kid from around the town Kicks pumped up and head held down Underwater more than he was up He dreamed submarines in bottle green Imaginary flight machines Today's other guest, Sean Barna, was a drummer who was directly inspired to start writing songs after hearing Counting Crows. In some sort of amazing serendipity, Barna found himself in Duritz's orbit, and the two became fast friends and eventually guests on each other's music. Barna recently signed to the venerated indie label Kill Rockstars, which just released his second album, An Evening at Macri Park, which is sort of a concept album about modern-day queer life in Brooklyn. It's emotional and catchy in all the right ways. Check out a little bit of the song Be a Man here, which features Duritz on guest vocals. In this fun and wide-ranging conversation, Duritz and Barna talk about playing shows together, the perfection that is a BLT sandwich, a bit of hazing that happened when Barna opened for Counting Crows the first time, and lots more. There's even a lengthy story from Duritz that starts with badly injuring his leg and ends with him looking for his underwear. Enjoy. All right. What have you been up to the past couple days? I was on the treadmill, I was reading, and Stephen Kellogg and his family came over. We all hung out. We had some Italian food. We played Uno Flip. Never played it before. The kids liked it. Did the kids win? No, I won. And I lorded it over everyone. When are you going on tour again? I got to go play a gig in San Antonio in about a week, and then do some press stuff in Nashville with Chris Caraba. And then we leave for tour... I think June 4th or 5th. That's going to be so fun. Yeah, I've been really lucky the last few years getting to spend all this, like, you know, we had Frank Turner, you and Matt Susich, uh, Stephen Kellogg last year for a while, and uh, now Chris in, you know, Dashboard Confessional. It's like summer with friends. You guys have a lot of weird rituals before the shows that I love. 
Immer does his tour, his his gig blessing as I'm finishing warming up, which that's always <laughs> ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and awesome. I've taken to like filming them lately. They're just so incredible. I saw it once, but I didn't know it was coming. And I was just sitting there like, what's going on? What? He does a different one every night. It's always like some artist, actor, you know, musician from that city. And he begins acting out some portion of a song. You know, it is completely unhinged. <laughs> it's some crazy cool shit. So you obviously tour a lot. Like half the time you'll be with touring with like live or dashboard confessional size bands. And then you'll take people like me out who nobody knows. That must be different somehow. Or is it just doesn't matter to you because it's all just your friends? To me, it's just my friends. The guys call it the pity fuck. Yeah. <laughs> no well, that's funny when your crew one of them's like you know you guys don't sell any tickets this is just because of your friends right i'm like yeah of course i know that <laughs> obviously obviously i know that who's completely uncool you're just fucking with me excuse me the first time i'm sorry uncool the first time immigrant had me come up on stage and you didn't know he had me come up and then you turned around and looked at me and i was like whoa okay uh first of all i was like on mushrooms because i was just trying to enjoy my night so that was funny. But then I'm in the hallway, kind of like, I just sang with Counting Crows. That was weird and unexpected. And then I think Tom comes out and is like, don't ever fucking do that again without, you know, he's fucking with me. Like, don't, Adam's pissed. Or oh, whatever. yeah. And then I'm sitting there for like three minutes. It wasn't like 30 seconds. You guys let me stew. And then Sam pops his head out of the back and goes, ha, 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 and he gives me a thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> I was like. Yeah, they told like me about that later. You, you said sorry to me. I was like, I was just fucking freaked out. That was funny. That, that was a good one. That was like day three. Yeah, you got to get him early. I should tell everybody, Sean sent me a series of questions to ask him during this interview. So I'll start with the first one. And it is, uh, Adam, when did you know I was a genius and start admiring me? Yeah, that's, I would like to know that, actually. Uh, well, I might as well start it with telling people about this. That when I first met Sean, you know, it was, we were doing, I guess, back in the Outlaw Roadshow. It wasn't Underwater Sunshine yet, I think. Right. And uh, you were, you know, played Garden Session and also at the show... And the thing that stuck out to me back then was Cutter Street, mm -hmm. which is an early song that uh, it floored me. It's just a great song. You know, it was really has a great chorus hook. It's just a really, really good song. And, then, you know, then we became friends after that. You know, and I heard a bunch of other material that I also thought was good. Cutter Street really stuck out. What really knocked me out, and you know, I think I said this in an interview a little while ago, was when, when you made Sissy. And, like, the Sissy EP, every song is incredible. It was a big leap forward to me in your writing. Like, it big, really changed right then. Like, I, I thought that was, like, a pretty significant piece of work. Not just because I sang on it, but certainly mostly because I sang on it. I saw you guys play, and I was like, huh, I think, I think I want to try writing songs. And I started writing songs because of you. And I met you that night, but randomly, like, a, like quick, after, you know, after the show meet. Nothing significant, really. But then uh, I was a drummer. I was, like, playing gigs. I was hired for gigs. So I was never in a band or anything, never part of a scene. I didn't have, like, a high school music you know, like scene, I was just kind of gigging already. I was playing bar, like bars and stuff, biker bars and honky tonks in Florida. But then uh, when you did Outlaw Roadshow, I was like, how cool would it be to be kind of a part of a little, like, it's like a scene. You kind of like created a little scene or just like a little group, feel like a part of something. And I wrote, um, but you were still taking submissions back then. I wrote, uh, I would have been Barbara. And it was, and told her that I, I started writing songs as a County Crows. And I sent her probably what would have been that Cutter Street EP. And I was supposed to play Austin. It got canceled that time. And then the next year, they called me like 25 hours before and said, can you play Outlaw Roadshaw? Three o'clock Friday, the first show. And I got in the car and drove nonstop from DC to Austin. <laughs> 
I got there 20 minutes before, played to just Barbara Ryan and the bartender, because it was just the beginning, and then just hung out for three days. And so then he let me play the New York one, like the following October, and that's when I met you. But it was funny, because I was playing, my, my band sounded like shit, and it was, I was pissed. So then the fourth song was Cutter Street, and I was like, don't play, I'm just going to play it alone. And then I'm just like having a beer like two hours later, and you tapped me on the shoulder and said, you like quoted the lyrics to me, you, must, you heard them once, you quoted them to me, <laughs> and said, that's a great, that's a great song. And I was like, oh, I started writing songs because of you. And you said, well, I'm glad when it works out. And then you walked away. <laughs> well, then later you were saying that we were all hanging. I was hanging out with some people. I didn't know anybody was getting to know people. And you walked up just to say hi at your, at your place. And you're like, what band was playing on the radio? It was like, you were like, I don't know. I really like this band, I guess. But I don't know, some of the lyrics, I don't know. You weren't like shitting on them. You were just kind of, we were just talking about music. And then I like immediately say, this from the fucking Na 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 guy, which is Long December. <laughs> and you just <laughs> died. You died laughing. And I, I think you asked me for my number after that. <laughs> I, I really like that about the about the road show and now about Underwater Sunshine. Because like when you start out, you know, you're playing in clubs and you do have a scene. You have a group of friends. You see them every night and they all play. And yours and, got uh, fucked up by fame, right? I mean, you, you couldn't do that anyway. Well, yeah. And after that, it's just like, you know, unless you want to go hang out at the MTV Awards, there isn't really that scene anymore. You know, you're you're on yeah. the road on your own. You don't you don't see people. You know, and I didn't for a lot of years. I didn't have a lot of friends who were musicians until I, you know, became friends with Ryan Spaulding again, and we started doing, you know, the Outlaw Road Show, and you know, I also started getting really social on Twitter, you know, and talking to people on Twitter and meeting other musicians on Twitter. That's how I met like Taylor Goldsmith from from Dawes. Yeah, who's very nice. You know, just becoming friends on Twitter. You know, but now it's like the last ten years. I've you know, a lot of my best friends are musicians now that I met in the Outlaw Roadshow or Underwater Sunshine. Steve and I met because I was in the airport in Salt Lake City on the way to play a gig. And he was on the way to play a gig in Park City. It was during Sundance one year. And he came up to me in baggage claim and he said, hey, I'm Stephen Kellogg. You know, and I, I, I knew Stephen Kellogg was, you know. I, you know, I almost signed at one point with Foundation who managed Stephen Kellogg in the Sixers, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. And, uh, he just said, you know, I'm a big fan and want to say hi. And then he walked off. I ran over to him before we left. I'm like, hey, here's my phone number. You know, like we live near each other, obviously. Let's let's hang out. Let's talk, you know. And so he ended up showing up after his gig, coming by our show. And we hung out for a little bit. You know, we've been friends ever since. It's funny. Well, like, you know, because now I'm, some of the interviews I'm doing for an evening of Eckerd Park, which is a new record, like me and Dave will do them together sometimes. And people ask, how did you two meet? This is Dave Drago, 1809 Studios. And I'm like, well, Adam created this thing this like music scene around this day of the year and we met at Adam's house <laughs> and now we've made all these records together. Oh, that's right. Cause Dave was working with Tallahassee back then. Yeah. We met at um, upstairs at Bowery Electric and kind of said hi and we were laughing. And then in your house, we were just doing what we do now, which is just be ridiculous people. But um, you know, we talk about that just alone, like how cool it is. Like for one thing, it doesn't revolve around you, the guy from Counting Crows, you know, it's at you organize it, but it really isn't like, like you're really hesitant to sing with people, for instance, like because you're like, well, then it's, as soon as you're on stage, it's all about you, yeah, and you don't want to do that. Plus, you're like, I just want to fucking sit here and drink a beer, you know. And it's so cool to watch all these little relationships pop up around you, but they're not about you, which is probably uh, a fresh a breath of fresh air for you, considering the past uh, thirty years of your life. But like, I, you know, I'm friends with Chris Caraba now because I met him at your house and uh, Stephen Kellogg and Susich. I know, and it's just cool to have all these random friendships. Yeah, it's, I tell people that. Uh... 
you know, like Chris was over here and you were over at that one point and Dave <laughs> and Maria Taylor. Yeah. Maria Taylor and Dave Leo Pepe and his wife were in town at one point. And I tell them like how we all like pass demos around each other when we're working on yeah. stuff. I'm sending it to like, you know, Chris or you or Dave and you're sending stuff to me and Chris sends stuff to me and Dave sends stuff to me. And it's a neat little quartet of people to me that we actually, you know, it's peers that you can talk to, to about stuff that, you know, like a lot of my friends for most of my life, uh, great friends, but they don't get this one weird thing. Like it's a weird thing to decide that, you know, it would be great. I'm feeling all this stuff. I should, <laughs> I should sing it and I should make it rhyme and I should put it out there in front of people. That's a weird series of decisions to make. Yeah. And be poor most of my life to do it. You know? It's yeah. Like, for all of us for a while, you know, well, except for Chris who just kicked, hit it out of the park young. Yeah. People are like, how'd you get famous? He's like, I don't know. People just pass around my EP without me doing anything at all. And then I was famous. <laughs> I'm just, he's the nicest guy in rock and roll. He's the nicest guy on the planet, probably. It helps being really, really good, which he is. So good. You know, I should mention that it's also been really circular how influential all of it was. Like the work with you and Dave, like I've known Dave for, I don't know, a long time, a decade probably, you know, Dave Drago. Yeah. But the work with you and him on Sissy really influenced me, you know, in the production that he did to the kind of like vibe that led into Butter Miracle. And we ended up using uh, Dave to do 90% of the background vocals on Butter Miracle. You know, I conferred a little bit with him about some of them and Immer sang a couple small things, but 90% of it is Dave. Just like, I would really love the work you guys are doing. And it was a flavor I wanted for Butter Miracle. And then he ended up doing all this work on Butter Miracle. And then me and Immer end up playing all over uh, an evening at Macri Park. You're on six songs. Yeah. yeah. Which is crazy. We're just like, because I've listened to a lot of Warren Zevon because obviously I like him. And like that first record is like, it's a mix of Fleetwood Mac, the Eagles, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like Jackson Brown, all these people, Jackson Brown, of course, people used to do that a lot more, I think, just like, you know, because they would all just play with each other. And that and like, like I've talked about, like creating a scene, like a snapshot of a time and a place. It was an evening at Macri Park is about, Macri Park is a bar, kind of like Lou Reed did with New York or uh, various people did with uh, Laurel Canyon. We have Michaela Davis is on this. Yeah. There's another person from the uh, Sunshine Fest. Michaela's thing might be my favorite song on the record. Like she manages to conjure up this whole sort of Christine McVie vibe like it it feels like laurel canyon i mean that's why those people are all on the warren zevon record because they're all living you know in the same neighborhood around lookout park and wonderland on laurel canyon they're all friends although maybe zevon lived in the east side somewhere did you know like his roommate at the time was rick james i think are you fucking kidding me i think zevon i think that's what james told me one point maybe it's in the book that zevon was living with rick james in like beachwood canyon at one point during that like they they were both really struggling and they were living above each other or something in Beechwood Canyon or they were both living above somebody else. Anyways. <laughs> but that, that song Michaela's on Macri Park, I listen to it all the time. It's just so good. I, I love her background. But part of it is also those harmonies that I, I guess Dave wrote. The chorus harmonies are really unique. They keep shifting through the chords. It's just really great. Well, you got to watch him do that with the Butter Miracle suite. He just has like a genius level mastery of creating these entire landscapes of background vocals. And now he's doing it while he's playing bass too, which is so cool. But I remember you doing the um, the day before COVID shut down the entire world. You did the vocal for uh, Angel on 14th Street, which was cool for me to see because it was like, wow, you know, this guy I've been listening to forever. I don't think about that when I'm hanging out with you. Even live, I don't think about it. But like watching you record the next record that everyone's going to listen to was really cool. 
Anyway, then you came out and you're talking about backup vocals. I didn't know what you were going to do. You wanted it to sound like sissy. And I remember saying, you know, he's not dead, right? Dave, he'll answer your phone call. <laughs> and you're like, oh, and then you called him. Yeah, it was a really good idea because we had a few things that Immer had laid down, but we were kind of stuck not being able to record because, you know, everything shut down. Like we were working on Butter, the first part of Butter Miracle. Yeah, like you said, right up till about the day that the world shut down. We were sitting there. Like March 13th or something. Yeah, like that week as we were, we were only supposed to be there for two weeks. And the last few days, we were just watching CNN and things are getting worse and worse. And we're like, oh, I guess we should wash really carefully after we pee. But what the fuck? And then it all yeah. shut down. So I sat there for about a month wondering what the fuck to do. And then I called Dave and like, I didn't even get to see him do it. He, he did it all at home because he has a studio up in Rochester, 1809 Studios. And, you know, I just get this email one day with this fucking glorious wash. Yeah, and he's nervous, by the way, when he sends that to you. He's like, I don't know. What if, what if it's bad? It's like, it's going to be all right, Dave. Yeah, it just came out great. I, I was so happy with it. It got that real like glam thing I wanted, that Mata Hoople you know, uh, yeah, I guess kind of Bowie-esque background vocals that I really wanted for those songs. Was that like, um, I mean, obviously you have a certain um, catalog of hits. When you're doing the shows, is that like your, the most fun part of the show for you? Or is that not something that when you do the whole suite? You know, it depends on the day. It's a weird thing. It is exhausting physically to do because I, I don't think I think about it because it's not like any one of the songs is that hard to sing. But there's something about going straight for 20 minutes without a moment to take a breath or rest your voice, like by- And it's kind of cinematic too. It's like, it's not, it's not just play a three minute song and then move on. It gets bigger and bigger and more and more effort on the singing as it goes. Like Tallgrass is pretty easy, but it gets really intense in the middle of it. Uh, Elevator Boots is easy, but I've never really played tambourine while I'm singing before. Like I, I've yeah. played tambourine a lot. I'm a pretty good tambourine player, but I've never done it like while I'm singing. And that not is easy. like- no, not just for the, like, doing it well, keeping in time, which is nerve-wracking, because uh, a tambourine is the loudest. I don't know if people know this. Tambourine is the loudest instrument on stage. Because of the frequency, you fuck up playing tambourine. It is so egregiously audible. It's horrific. I have a classical percussion degree where I had to learn yeah. that very, in very many hard ways. <laughs> a lot, like, people come up on stage and they're like, yeah, I'll just play tambourine. And I'm like, the fuck you will. No, you, you threw it to me during hanging around and I just threw it to Spencer. I was fine giving it to you or Spencer, I, but there's no way other people, it's like, uh-uh, I don't think so. No. But, you know, so that, <laughs> but it's also the cardio of it. Like singing is like doing sit-ups. And then this thing, the whole time you're singing, it's like a cardio thing as well. And then you get to Angels of Angel 14th Street, which is legitimately... Uh, long lines, not a lot of breath, and you gotta like, and they're big, they're bigger, they're a little higher. The choruses are big, you know, and it gets a little more cardio. And you've just finished doing this, and then it goes straight into Bobby and the Rat Kings. By the outro, of Bobby and the Rat Kings, I'm kind of exhausted, or at least the muscle here is tired, you know. But I, I love playing it. I'm really happy to sit down for long December. Usually at that point, I jumped off your monitors once, and that stage for some reason was slippery, and I hit it and went down i slipped right down and somebody had it but whoever had that video i can't remember who it was showed me and like all of your band and the counting codes are there laughing at me at this video of me falling everybody's laughing at me falling and i'm like good thanks guys <laughs> there's this great we were playing it's the biggest show we've ever played we played blockbuster festival when they opened texas motor speedway oh well wow. the one that's like in fort worth outside of dallas they did this huge concert there this is like 96 maybe uh, it must have been like 96, because I know that the Wallflowers played it, Matchbox played it, a whole bunch of people played it, and we played it. 
So it's, it's, it's a half a million people. It's massive. And we're playing, it's the satellites is out, recovering the satellites. And so we're playing in the concert, we're playing uh, Angels of Silences. And at one point in the concert, it's like right before the solo, duh, duh, I can't remember, duh, duh, and Charlie's like kind of jumps up and hits the organ keys. He's, you know, wailing on the organ before the guitar solo. And he jumps up and the stage below him, like the riser he was on, collapsed, just collapsed. It just, it just, he broke through a hole in it and fell right through. And it's on the jumbotron, but no one sees it because it's in the background of like me finishing the verse, going into Dan playing the solo. But we got a video of it later and it's like, you can see it in the background. It's like, da, 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 da. And then it's like, <laughs> you can just see his hands in the top of his head, like over, he just like sinks through the stage and it's just his hands on and this like top of his head. Did he miss a note? <laughs> no, that's, by the way, when you fell in that song, did you keep singing or did you stop? I, it was the end. It was uh, the oh. end of the show. It's like, everybody falls on stage, but can you just keep going? We were playing the Beacon Theater in New York, also on the Satellites Tour, and we're playing Angels of Silences. It's always fucking Angels of the Silences. We're playing Angels of the Silences, and that same moment, at the like the intro to the solo, I ran to the back of the stage, planted my foot on the drum riser, and jumped up, and as I'm in the air, and I'm like over the top of the drums, I'm coming down and I'm thinking, I'm gonna land too late, I'm not landing on the one for the solo, what a bummer, you know? And instead of like, you know, I, I reached out my legs to hit on the right thing, and I snapped my knee. No, and <laughs> oh, no. My, you know, your leg bends this way, but not that way. And I hit the ground and I thought I'd snap my leg in two. It was so loud that Dan turned around during his solo, but I got up and I could stand on it, although it hurt a lot. and. I went to the mic and uh, I was like, what the fuck? You know, it hurt, but I could still sing. And I keep singing. And uh, I mean, it turned out later on, I'd snap my ACL, my MCL and both meniscus. Um, I had to get a surgery. I played the rest of that night and the rest of the tour. And I got surgery the morning after the tour, but it was uh, really weird that night. I was really kind of in shock. Have you ever gone into shock? It shuts down your brain in a really weird way. Like I... Tom was like, kept trying to get me to come off the stage, you know, and I was, no, no, I'm not going to keep playing because I didn't want to cancel the gig. And then he comes up after one song and he grabs me around the chest and lifts me up and carries me off the stage. And Dan's like, where are you, Dan's like, where are you going? And Tom's play a song. He goes, play what song? And he's like, I don't give a fuck which song, you Egypt. <laughs> play some song. And so he took me backstage and my friend Pat, who runs like a whole physical medicine center here. Uh, Pat is backstage because he was in the front. He saw it happen. He knew what was going on. He was back there saying, Tom, get him off stage. And it's the Beacon, which is this old union hall. And uh, right off the side of the stage, there's no dressing rooms there. They're all up. It's like a there's an elevator. And a, you're like basically in a stairwell on the side of the stage. And they got a chair there. And it's uh, he sits me down in the chair. And he's like, hey, drop trout. So I you know, pull my pants down so I can check it out. And he's, I'm looking around. And, you know, there's like my managers are there. There's an elevator. There's a union guy standing there because it's a union hall. There's a stairwell. And I'm looking around trying to figure out what's going on. And Pat's like, you know, does this hurt? Does that hurt? He's moving my leg around. And I don't remember anything he was saying. But I look down. Oh, no. And, no, no, no. And, I'm there, and there's my dick. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking normally during shows, you can't see my dick. But, you know, and I'm like, why? Why can I see it now? You know? You were really fucked up. I was really, because you're in shock. Your brain doesn't work yeah. right. And I'm like, why can I see it now? And I think when I pulled my pants down, I must have pulled my underwear down. You know, like that's what I must have done. Like, yeah, I got I to gotta find my underwear. 
and and put him back on. So I'm, I'm, I remember distinctly, like looking around up the stairwell in the corners of the ceiling, trying to. And I got like, I'm like, where's my underwear? And I, I, you know, you're in this fog. You can't think clearly. And I remember really, I'm like, I got to be logical about this. When I got dressed today, oh my god, I put on my underwear, my pants, my socks, and then my shoes. And I click my feet together. I'm like, my shoes are still on. My underwear is somewhere between my shoes <laughs> my, and, and my, my dick. dick. <laughs> or my sh- and my pants are there. So it's somewhere between my pants and my dick. I just have to start at one and go down to the other. You know, and I so I, I did that. I you know, looked down and I, and I and I literally followed my way down my legs towards my pants and there's my underwear. And then I guess I said out loud, here's my underwear, and I pulled it up. <laughs> I pulled them up and all these people backstage, the union guy, my managers, Pat, they all just look at me like, Tom, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I was like, sorry, I had to find them. It was hard. You know? Like, you know like, and they're like, yeah, okay. I go, can I go play? Uh, yeah. Can you stand up? Yeah, yeah, sort of. Okay. I guess we'll – can we get the x-ray afterwards? Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. So – and I went back on stage. Wow. But I, I remember that whole, that whole thought process is still like, and this is 20 years later, it's still so vivid to me because like, <laughs> I got to be Sherlock Holmes here. You had, you, had, you had all the lyrics though. I guess. Yeah. That's like, that can be lizard brain stuff though. You know, like that, yeah. that's back there. That just, you just start a song and then the, the lyrics kind of come most of the time. Except for rehearsing that first Butter Miracle run there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's weird. It's the first time I've ever had that much time off from touring. Like, I've never gone two years without a gig, like since I was a kid, you know, and uh, I don't think I've ever worried so much about, I suddenly I was like, how am I going to remember all these fucking words? Not just Butter Miracle, but all those fucking songs I wrote that have too many goddamn words. Suddenly it seemed really daunting. Brian uh, Deck was mixing my Pictures of an Exhibitionist record, and I didn't know you that well yet, but he's like, you and fucking Durrance, man, all these goddamn words, why don't you just write a fucking song? And I was, <laughs> it was like, yeah, well, I did the same thing with the words, but... My uh, favorite slash least favorite memory from tour is Berkeley, where you're from, and it's like special to you, I say. I'm singing Danger Baby, which I already have trouble remembering the words to. And I see you and Zoe walking out into the audience, and you have a hat on, and I'm like, what is he doing? If he gets seen, he's going to... You're like in the middle of the snake spit or something. Like everyone will know who you are, right? And But you were kind of... You don't you have the hair anymore, so pe- people maybe aren't paying attention. And you just walk over and sit... And I just started laughing, and then I forgot my lyrics. <laughs> and then I said to them, I'm like, after, to the audience, I was like, sorry, I just saw an old friend in the audience. And it crossed my mind for one second to be like, hey, look, it's Adam I would say that I would have killed you, but I wouldn't have gotten a chance to. Tom would have been there first. Oh, yeah. You know, it's my favorite venue in the world. And the sound booth is a great place at that venue to watch people from, you know? Yep. And there's no way I'm not going to watch you and Matt from the sound booth. Like, it's, it's the Greek theater. It's your first time there. I'm going out to watch you guys play. I did the side of the stage for a while, but then I was just like, I got to go. I got to go out there. It's so cool. It's like the pillars, you know, the Roman columns or the Greek columns or whatever. And there you guys are on stage. It was just fucking really cool. Well, me seeing you made me completely start laughing and blank on the entire second verse of that song. (laughs) And I was just like, what is he doing out there? It was fun. And then I saw some of my best friends come in. You know, we had the backstage all closed off, so I wasn't getting to see anyone at those gigs. I hadn't seen any of these guys, so I got to, like, I went down, I think, for the end of your set. I can't remember who played first that night, you or Matt. For the end of the second set, yeah, you played. So for the end of Matt's set, I went and sat, like, in the, I don't know, eighth or tenth row with a couple of my best friends. 
Hey, this is Josh Modell, host of the TalkHouse podcast. We love it when musicians come on the show and talk about process, and often they'll get into the nuts and bolts of being a working artist, which can sometimes be fun and sometimes feel more like a business. Well, this episode of TalkHouse is brought to you by DistroKid, which is an amazing service for musicians looking to get their songs out into the world in an incredibly smart and cost-effective way. For the past decade plus, DistroKid has made it easy to get your music on all the streaming services, including Spotify, Apple Music, TikTok, Instagram, and more. You keep 100% of your earnings minus a flat yearly fee, which is a better deal than you'll find anywhere else. More than a million artists use DistroKid, and the latest version of their app is better than ever. It includes features that make it easy to see your account details, including the money you've earned, as well as to seamlessly edit things like lyrics and metadata across platforms. There's even a feature called Instant Share, which allows you to easily share files with your bandmates, booking agent, playlist curators, and more. DistroLock allows you to protect your songs. DistroKid users get a YouTube official artist channel, too. The list goes on. The DistroKid app is available on iOS and Android. Go check it out today. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network. Hey, TalkHouse listeners, it's Josh Modell. Instead of encouraging you to listen to podcasts today, I'm here to encourage you to read something great. The particular something I have in mind is the second issue of The TalkHouse Reader, the print zine spearheaded by our fantastic music editor, Annie Fell. This issue is focused on the intersection of food and music, and it features contributions from Maddie Matheson, Coleman Domingo, Squirrel Flower, Sam Evian, the Blessed Madonna, and more. There are pieces about eating while on tour, the gentrification of food, cooking as a creative catalyst, and much, much more. You can order a copy today, along with the first issue, at store.talkhouse.com. Please do check it out. I texted you this, but I left your house. Actually, I, my keys were with my band, so I left your house, and I had to wait for my band to bring me my keys so I can get in my car. So I went over to McSorley's. I hadn't been to McSorley's in a long time, and uh, when, gang, when Gang of Youths came to town, they all decided to go to McSorley's, and I was like, well, I haven't been there in a while. So I went there, and I, you know, I had a few beers with them. But they, they bring the stuff to the table that's like, it's, it doesn't look like much. It's a pile of crackers and cheese and yes. like pickled onions. It, it, uh-huh. it doesn't look good. It's like this weird unboxed saltines kind of, but they're not saltines. I think it's, like, they get grub. it in the wrapper, like open, like you get yeah. half of the open wrapper. Like, and this weird, yeah. small, slight slivers of white cheese that are the same size as the cracker. And then these pickled onions. And I was like, fuck is this? And, and the guy's like, oh, it's a, it's the food we serve, you know, with everybody. It's, it's, and you know, it's that kind of thing where like, when you love food, you're like, Okay, this is something really weird that obviously somebody decided was really good. I got to try this, you know, and I got the cracker and the cheese and the pickled onion. But uh, it, it's incredible. Yeah. It's so good together. Uh, you know, it's one of these things. It's like, you know, like a BLT is a really weird sandwich. When you think about those three things, bacon, lettuce, and tomato, they don't seem like they add up to much. Like you put lettuce and tomato on sandwiches, but they're not the main thing, you know. And bacon yeah. doesn't seem like it would really do it. On a toasted piece of bread, it seems like a really thin excuse for a sandwich. But a BLT is a perfect sandwich. I know you probably haven't <laughs> had a BLT in a long time. But, no. but a BLT is a perfect fucking sandwich. There's just something about the combination that is absolutely incredible. And this fucking cheese and cracker and pickled onion, I, 
God, is it a pickled onion? I, now it's really going to bother me that I can't remember what the fuck it is. The first time I went in there, I'd never been there, but I knew kind of what it was. It was me and my friend Diana. We walk in there during the day on like a Tuesday or something. Nobody's in there really. We walk up to the bar and this older woman who's bartending says, light beer, dark beer, what? Yeah. It turns out that's all the questions you need. Yeah. And they serve it like the two little cup, like two little glasses. So they don't have to wait for the foam to go down. And I think they like yell at you. Yeah. They use those weird half pints. I think I take it for granted sometimes, but the place is great. Uh-huh. Beer's pretty good. That fucking cracker thing is incredible. And it's not pretentious either. It's just not changed at all. <laughs> for 150 years or maybe more. I don't know how old it is. It's the oldest bar in New York. Lincoln's been there, that kind of shit. Yeah. So it's more than 150 years old now. I think about it then. It didn't turn into this weird, uh, it's not, or like, it's not the Hard Rock Cafe where it's just about the t-shirts, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know. They don't have t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it isn't, it isn't like, it isn't like that. It's actually a bar that still works and you can go hang out there and it's crowded sometimes and not crowded other times, but it's pretty steadily kept business for a couple centuries now. You know, they're getting, they're closing down the Friars Club. That's the only place you've done comedy. It is, yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to update the Wikipedia article say the only place Adam Durant says maybe achieve funniness. No, no, because I've, <laughs> I've, done, I've done Caroline's and the Comedy Cellar with Jeff and with, with Saget. Did it with both of them. Man, that was a sad one, man. I know he's your friend. That one still hits me. Like, it's weird how much that hits me all the time. I, I just will be sitting around. I'll think of something about Bob, and then I'll just want to call him, and it's just this gut punch. Like where it doesn't seem to be going away in any appreciable... I, ju it's, I just can't grasp that he's not around. Yeah. And, and it hits me all the time in ways I'm so surprised. Like, I've had people I knew pass away before, but for some reason, Saget, it just is just still devastating. That sucks. We should end on that right now. <laughs> <laughs> when I was locked in that hotel room in Wellington because I had uh, COVID, and I was stuck in a hotel room for a week, and one full day, I just decided to binge Jeff Ross. You know, and I watched one of his stand-up things. I watched his roast the prisoners in that Texas jail and then roast the cops, in which he did in Boston, where he ran around with the cops, and then roast the border, where he went to, like, a border town and did, like, comedy. And then I watched the Bump and Mike's thing with him and Dave Attell, which is so good. They did, like, three days over a weekend in New York where they just kept doing it all every night. But then there was the, the Saget tribute after he died. They did a thing at the Comedy Store in L.A. with uh, and everyone like like Jim Carrey shows up. It's, it's, it's just Jeff at first. It's, they think it's just going to be Jeff. But then uh, Jim Carrey shows up and Chris Rock comes and, and May, John Chappelle Mayer. Chappelle is there? And Chappelle. Chappelle that's the other guy. That, and Chappelle came. And, and Jim uh, Carrey doesn't do anything. That he, I mean, he's yeah, he doesn't sh super, like super superstar. Yeah. But he's and a comedian. That's what he that's is. One of them says that, too. I think Chris Rock says, shit, if I'd known this is what it took to get you out of the house, I'd have killed Saget years ago. Fucking <laughs> incredible joke. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but at one point, uh, Jackson Brown comes out and plays for a dancer, you know? And, uh, and I, it really kind of knocked me out. And when we were down in Australia right just now, we played uh, Blues Fest in Byron Bay. And right before us, Jackson Brown played. And really? I went up to watch him. And man, it was... It was fucking incredible. Like, he played this version of Late for the Sky. Like, he ended the set with Doctor My Eyes, Late for the Sky, and Running on Empty, you know? And a couple of B-sides. Yeah. <laughs> Late for the Sky, which is one of my favorite songs anyone ever wrote. You know, and that's a big part of why I'm a songwriter. It's like, those early Jackson Brown records, uh, you know, but specifically that record, Late for the Sky. I'll listen to it on my way to DC today. That song, just, it was so fucking good. 
you know, I, I just really kind of knocked me out. Like Immer and I were on stage and I saw Jackson Brown a lot of times when I was a kid. I, I was been a big fan. Me and my friend John Marotta were walking down from uh, Griffith Observatory. We're walking by this house. There's these big doors that shut. You know, a lot of L.A. houses are shut in because everyone's famous and they need to be left alone. Anyway, we're walking there. There's this guy, like, getting the mail in a bathrobe. And whatever, we're just, hey, how you doing? And we walk by, me and John. And then me and John stop at the same time. And we're like, that was fucking Jackson Brown. <laughs> That's the only time I saw Jackson Brown. We didn't bother him, but I was like, holy shit. You lose that whole guy in a robe experience living in New York. You know, there's no yeah. guy in a robe experience in New York because no one's going out to get anything at the street, you know? Yep. Vertical living, you lose the whole guy in the robe experience. Well, that's why I hang around your house. Yeah, we all just walk out with our robes, you know, during the Sunshine Festival. Remember when we used to do the Outlaw Roadshow and everyone would stay here? Uh-huh. And there would be like, it would be like 30 people staying here. Every flat surface was covered with like air mattresses and sleeping bags. I slept on that red couch. The circular one? It's not good for sleeping. <laughs> Yeah. I woke up on that couch the first time I played, and I didn't know you really. But I, there were a lot of people there, but I wake up to you sitting right next to me talking to whoever was there, not me, obviously, I was sleeping. I wake up and I'm like, oh, thanks for letting me sleep here. And they're like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so it's pretty funny. It's like, Why does this guy let these fucking people hang out here? Then I, the first time I saw you going to your room, that's all I'll say. The first time I saw that, I was like, ball and motherfuckers going to, you're not going to see him for the rest of the night. <laughs> It's really cool. <laughs> well, sometimes you got to go away. I didn't always stay for the jam sessions. No, I, I know what the moment is that you leave and the moment that is that I leave. And it's one specific song. And I say, it makes me feel embarrassed to be a musician all of a sudden. Like, it's like the guy at the party oh, yeah. playing the, the wait. It's not so much the wait for me as it is I shall be released. But either one of them oh. at that point in the night is like... This is I, bad. You're ruining a perfectly good yeah, night. Like, I don't know about doing I shall be released altogether. Table Pepe sat down and he played like three fucking Elton John hits. And I was like, yeah, about that. A jam where nobody can really join in. Who's <laughs> playing Rocket Man? Right? That's right. They played Irving Plaza that year. And, you know, Zoe introduced me to the band when I first met her. And I flipped out. I loved them. And the next time they came to town was like the one time in those three months that I had a gig on the other side of the country. So I missed them. But the next year they came back and they were playing Irving Plaza. So after the show, we, I went backstage and we all hit it off so much talking backstage that uh, they had a couple gigs and then it was Christmas and they all decided to stay and spend Christmas with us. We had a huge household full of people for Christmas that year. But uh, yeah, that was really fun. I just really think they're like the best rock and roll band in the world right now. They're just, they blow my mind. They're so fucking good. I love it. Yeah, man, that band, your band was so good the other night. At, uh, at Baby's All Right. They were really, really good. That's a great, it, it, it's getting that thing like they've got their flavor down and they just, they're getting to that we're a freight train on stage. You know, it's getting yep. to that vibe where they just rolls through. We did, a, after talking to you that morning, we just talked about the show and then we did the one in Philly and it was like, I was way more dialed into what, it was fucking cool. Everyone was like, holy shit, that was really special for us. How long have we been doing this? An hour. Oh, okay. Cool. Thanks, man. That was great. That was cool. Thanks for listening to the TalkHouse podcast, and thanks to Adam Duritz and Sean Barna for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow TalkHouse on your favorite podcasting platform and check out all the goodness at TalkHouse.com. This episode was produced by Myron Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time. <laughs>